For quite some time, you probably would have said we live in interesting times, but it would seem over the last month we have found ourselves in increasingly more interesting times. And I now find myself in a new podcast. Welcome to The Funny Thing About. My name is Keith Hannon, the voice and brain behind said podcast, though neither one of those are guaranteed to thrill you. Some of you may know I started a different podcast about a year and a half ago that featured interviews with members of my local community who are involved in unique careers or endeavors. That cast was inspired by a 2017 political campaign I waged and was going well until I was tapped to fulfill a vacancy on my village board of trustees, a vacancy I was available to fill because the 2017 campaign didn't go so well. The time the podcast required evaporated upon my unexpected opportunity to step into government. Now, 22 months into a political career, I find myself wanting to elaborate on issues that are both locally and nationally relevant, but not in the way those discussions are typically conducted, which is through intentionally polarizing discourse. While the podcast is inspired by my involvement in local and political issues, the title comes from my past life as an inspiring comic trying to hack it in Hollywood. For most of my life, my default perspective on life has been to find the funny in every situation. While that gets harder to maintain as I slip deeper into middle age, where parenting, working, and paying a mortgage pose a constant threat to my sense of humor, I find my comedic sensibility may be more necessary than it was when I was a single starving artist. In our digital times, we find a plethora of cooks in our social and political kitchens, many of whom prefer to scare rather than comfort. I find myself yearning for conversation that can be absorbed rather than utilized for hate and fear. My hope is that The Funny Thing About offers a voice of calm and reason in an age of polarization and distrust. We need to commit ourselves to better conversations with our family, friends, neighbors, and country people. Divide and hostility is far too common a theme and it's penetrating every area of our life. Albeit at a small level, my time behind the political curtain representing residents of varying opinions and political ideologies has taught me some early lessons that will be used to generate a dialogue that is consumable regardless of your political palate. However, you may find the occasional diatribe of a working husband and father of three who moonlights as a youth sports coach, nonprofit board member, and village trustee may not be worth your time. I admit, it's hard to imagine that being binge-worthy, but I'm willing to give it a try. You don't participate in all the activities I just mentioned without secretly loving punishment. And now, the inaugural episode of The Funny Thing About. Episode 1. The Funny Thing About My Own Mental Health I am an athlete. I am athletic. Arizona State, Pac-10, educated. Successful. Double parked right now. Not worried at all about tickets. I'll just start a new 
credit card. I'll do a balance transfer. I'm very intense. I get B.O. in the shower. I shave with sweat. Against the grain, Mach 11. I'm drenched in witch hazel. Whole Foods can't contain me. Trader Joe's wants my business. I take Propecia for depression. I take 20 milligrams of Lexapro for hair growth. I'm feeling good. I'm going to go into the Hollywood Hills tonight and celebrate. I'll cross picket lines. The writers are on strike. What are they going to do? Beat me with a pen? What are you going to do? Attack me with your final draft software? I played baseball, Division One. I'm wearing a jock strap right now. Youth, triple X. It's a little snug. I purchased it at Play It Again Sports. Well, that's Brody Stevens, comedian, actor, former minor league baseball player, and truly a unique talent. What you're about to hear is something I've been writing on and off for more than a year. It's a story I've wanted to tell for quite some time, but never knew if it was one worthy of an audience or something I was even ready to share with the masses. And by masses, I mean up to about the nine people who might actually listen to or read it. This is a story that is deeply personal. An odyssey into the far reaches of my mind, which is a place typically reserved for myself and a very few close loved ones. Trust me, it's better for everybody if that's the case. Even close family members and friends will be surprised by certain details of this expose. It's the kind of thing you tell your friend that you want them to talk about, but at the same time you hope they don't share because you know it's going to end up in you becoming their therapist. They'll start calling at all times of the day because now you get them. Well, here's my promise to you. I won't call. Ever. But maybe you should email me your number, just so I can call to say, I won't call. But we do live in interesting times. We live in tough times. Not tough like the Great Depression or the threat of Germany's fascism taking over the world. We're not building bomb shelters in fear of nuclear holocaust, and we're not even hearing as much about international terrorism sweeping through the democratic West. We are facing a pandemic and many other stresses. And we hurt, we're angry, we're dissatisfied, frustrated, and scared. And we are some or all of these things, whether we're rich or poor, single, married, or divorced, parents or childless, and yes, even conservative or liberal. These feelings transcend gender identity, sexual orientation, race, religion, and sports team affiliation. Though I do submit that the Buffalo sports fans might deal with these emotions more than the average fan. Every day, there's a new online debate about you name what, about you name who, and you name the town, city, or country. 
We appear to be more concerned about how others are wrecking the world around us instead of throwing a glass of cold water on our faces and stopping to consider how we are wrecking ourselves. Several factors made it clear to me that whether or not this is something I wanted to publish is irrelevant, but rather it's something I need to publish. One was listening to the audiobook of Bruce Springsteen's autobiography narrated by the boss himself. Throughout the book, Bruce divulges his lifelong battle with anxiety and depression, and long ago, I decided if Bruce Springsteen does it, I should do it too. I mean, this depression thing, you use concerts as a form of self-medication, don't you? <laughs> well, that's what I... I think that's how it all started. <laughs> you know, you're young and you don't understand the different things you're feeling. Uh, you certainly don't understand if there's any chemical imbalance in your makeup. Mm -hmm. So all I knew was when I played, it deeply centered me and chased away my blues, you know, for whatever the reason was. Um, I think it was, it, there was an enormous amount of self-realization in playing. And when you w walked off the stage at night, you knew who you were, you know, and you felt you'd done something constructive. So you left with a certain feeling of lightness and a certain positivity that eluded me in a lot of the rest of my daily life. Mm -hmm. So music was really my first uh, refuge against things that were bothering me. You know, I tended to struggle most when I was off the road, mm -hmm. when I was not playing, and when I was not always necessarily my own best company. Actually, the most significant influencer was that May is Mental Health Awareness Month, and September features Suicide Awareness Week. And while I see much advocacy around these months, it has always felt to me that mental health is still spoken about as something other people need to deal with. And other people should identify their issues for my sake and that of the people around them. Far less are we confronted with the testimonials of people in our community or social circles admitting to their own struggle. Well, okay now, buckle up. Here comes some data. Because without data, well, this is just cable news. According to the General Social Survey, a highly regarded research project, Americans say life is becoming more miserable. The National Alliance on Mental Illness says one in five U.S. adults experience mental illness each year. One in 25 American adults experience serious mental illness each year. One in six American youth aged 6 to 17 experience a mental health disorder each year. 50% of all lifetime mental illness begins by age 14 and 75% by age 24. Suicide is the second leading cause of death among people aged 10 to 34. More specifically, the science is out on men in mental health, and as you might guess, it turns out we kind of suck at confronting our issues. Nearly 1 in 10 men experience depression and anxiety, according to a poll of 21,000 American men by the researchers at the National Center for Health Statistics. Nearly 1 in 10 men reported experiencing some form of depression or anxiety, but less than half sought treatment. Men die by suicide three and a half times more often than women. 
and depression, when left untreated, can in some cases reach a crisis point of suicidal contemplation. With so few men reaching out for help or support, and instead suffering in silence, this may be one reason why men face a higher suicide rate. Men are almost two times more likely to binge drink than women. Not only do men binge drink more often than women, men consistently have higher rates of alcohol-related deaths and hospitalizations. Men are also more likely to have used alcohol before dying by suicide. 49% of men feel more depressed than they admit to the people in their life. A Today Show commissioned survey of more than 1,000 men revealed the truth that many assume. Men are much less likely to voice struggles with mental illness and even thoughts of suicide. Yet I find we're most likely to discuss mental health in two scenarios, mass shootings and celebrity suicide. But as we see our country and communities increasingly divided by social and political issues, we'd be well served by some universal self-reflection. What I am about to offer you here does include a quasi-celebrity in crisis, but it is not the story of someone struggling with notoriety, nor is it one of someone finding a way to process personal tragedy. It is, however, a Cliff's Note journey through personal experiences and how they cumulatively started an internal boil that eventually spilled over. It's important to make clear that I'm not a doctor. I don't pretend to know what you are dealing with or the best prescription for treatment. How I deal with myself may not work for you. What I hope recounting this spillage provides is comfort in knowing someone who feels they've enjoyed a privileged existence has found they are not exempt from being forced to confront the concept that the brain is a muscle that, like the legs, will cease to function at peak performance without proper movement and attention to its well-being. This is not an advice piece, it's a confession. If just one person can relate to it and find confidence in dealing with their own emotions head-on, then it did its job. Well, that's enough prologue. Let's get on with it. If you're lucky, at some point in your life, you'll find yourself in an environment that's rich with intimidation and devoid of sympathy. These comfort zone destroyers are rarely enjoyable, but are almost always beneficial. There's no default acceptance or presumed benefit of your presence. If accolades are what you're after, you need to earn them. One of my more profound experiences with such a scenario was when I spent a college semester in the city of Los Angeles. After more than 20 years in New York's southern tier, stepping into the city of Angels brought with it all sorts of culture shock. Stepping off the plane and being hit with an abundance of sunlight knocked me back like Cosmo Kramer being drilled by the glow of the Kenny Rogers roaster sign. If you don't know Seinfeld references, I advise watching the entire series on Hulu before moving forward. Climate aside, the business side of Hollywood was the ultimate being thrown into the deep end. But as you tread water, you always have to keep a lookout for the occasional life raft. My first go-round in Hollywood was through a semester-long internship with the now-canceled The Best Damn Sports Show, period. This was a daily talk show that mixed professional sports and entertainment. We had a live studio audience in-house five days a week, and the person in charge of keeping that audience energized 
was the warm-up performer and stand-up comedian Brody Stevens. I was in awe of Brody. Funny, confident, unique. After a while, I was able to find moments to engage with Brody and our conversations became more regular. I interviewed him as part of a remote episode of my Ithaca College campus TV show, and he was a major inspiration for my eventual foray into stand-up comedy. Money's not important for you at this juncture? I didn't say that. <laughs> money is secondary. Of course money's important, but I do it for the art. A lot of people wouldn't do warm-up because their ego can't take it, and they not a they're not able to connect with, uh, you know, run-of-the-mill average Joes that are, you know, 13-year-old Latino gangbangers, rehab clinics from Bakersfield, uh, high school football teams from South Dakota, uh, the occasional spring breaker, runaways from England. I've had people like that seem to seek me out. If you stay in a youth hostel or a uh, hourly <laughs> motel, chances are you've sat in my crowd. Now, uh, you have a little bit of experience um, in the New York region, city area. Manhattan, three years, lived in Brooklyn. L Train sold illegal DVDs right in front of Jay-Z. Recognize that. Yeah. <laughs> but I've been on the Triborough. I've been on the 59th Street Bridge. I've been above and below the Lincoln Tunnel. I just worked today for two and a half hours. So I'm a little, I'm a little, a little low on the ginseng level that I could use a Red Bull right now or maybe some uh, ephedra. Well, you know, in my opinion, you're an Adonis uh, and you do great for yourself. Even after I graduated college and moved to LA, I would occasionally run into Brody on the basketball courts of North Hollywood High School. There he would be standing, alone, shorts and a t-shirt, baseball cap, just throwing a ball against a wall, letting it come back to him, one hop or two, scoop it up, and pitch it back to that wall all over again. He had an arm that took him into the minor leagues, but eventually he turned his focus from fastballs to one-liners and was gaining momentum after small roles in popular movies like The Hangover. From the outside, Brody's stock appeared to be rising. And then, about one year ago, came the report that Brody had taken his own life. Film and television mesmerized me from a young age. It, it feels like I was idolizing the dry humor of Bill Murray before I was counting to ten. As I waded through high school, my father would often say, I wish you could recall math formulas like you do random TV and movie quotes. He wasn't wrong. I had the uncanny ability to store away the most obscure quotes from beloved and little-known movies and sitcoms. However, what my brilliant, right-brained engineer father didn't realize was that I recited all of those quotes because I knew they would result in something I felt didn't happen enough. They made him laugh. My devotion to releasing him from his otherwise stoic persona was as much for me as it was for him. While I enjoyed the wisecracks, there was plenty of my father in me when it came to academic expectations. When I look back at my youth, I can see little breadcrumbs that leave a trail to where I am now as an adult. I set a high bar for myself. I always have, probably always will. Failure to achieve success was not something I handled with grace. I can distinctly recall breaking into tears as a fifth grader because I felt my science project team wasn't carrying their weight 
and despite my greatest efforts, we were going to fail at meeting the criteria of our assignment. Oh no, the fifth grade science project. How catastrophic. Now this should not have come as a surprise, considering a year earlier I brought home a math test that I failed. Crumpled it up and stashed it in a shallow grave beneath a pile of stuffed animals hidden from the judgmental eyes of my parents. Even at age 11, I harbored anxiety over a school task because the thought of failure was unfathomable. I might get a bad grade, and what would my parents think then? A more embarrassing moment happened in 6th grade. I was having a hard time holding in my emotions during social studies after feeling like I handed in a disastrous math test just minutes before. Mr. Whitehawk, my inspiring social studies teacher, could see I was in distress and called a timeout to take me into the hallway where I promptly broke down and sobbed my way through an explanation that included how I was unable to complete the math exam in the time allotted and the grade would surely be terrible. Really, is there anything worse than being 11 years old and crying in front of your classmates? That is an easy way to plummet down the middle school coolness rankings. So much for a date at the next dance. Just a few examples of many from my childhood where I led myself to believe catastrophe laid on the other side of a poor grade in school. Whether it was the classroom or the athletic field, I demanded the best out of myself because I knew that's what was expected. Even in success, I found it hard to accept compliments. I loved baseball, and I loved being a pitcher. Sure, you were out there alone on that island, but you had the ball. You were the first line of defense against the other team. But sometimes, even a win wasn't enough. I would pitch my team to victory, and when my teammates' parents would approach me after the game and offer their compliments, I would respond by reminding them that the opponent scored several runs they should not have scored due to my mistakes. This led to many a lecture from my mother, lectures I still continue to receive 25 years later. Humor became my counterpunch to my unreasonable self-expectations. The before-mentioned Mr. Whitehawk was the first teacher I experienced who utilized laughter in the classroom. That alone made me want to attend his classes, and I wasn't the only middle schooler who felt that way. His ability to inspire learning through jokes and silliness amazed me. Suddenly, I was introduced to the concept that you can laugh and be productive at the same time. Who knew? As high school pushed on, humor pushed out academic stress, though most of the stress went away once I came to understand there was a path to collegiate success that didn't include math and science. It felt like the end of high school was an opportunity to break away from some of these adolescent stressors. And when it came time to pick a college, I didn't stray far from home. Ithaca College was only an hour away, but it felt light years from everything I knew. I had a very close group of friends in high school, many of whom were at colleges with at least one other person from our group. Not the case for me. I had dreams of becoming a sports media personality, and that took me on a more specialized path. While freshman year was 
pretty lonely and I didn't meet my lifelong college friends until sophomore year, it wasn't the college transition that would shake up my perception of the world around me and introduce me to personal fragility. Johnson City High School wasn't big, but it wasn't tiny. Our graduating class was around 200, and as class president, I felt like I had a good connection with many different cliques within the school. When you're 18, responsibilities are hard to come by, and you generally feel you're indestructible. That perception changed in a hurry when I attended two funerals before the end of my freshman year of college. Two high school classmates died within months of each other, kids whose birthday parties I attended and with whom I shared a Little League team. I thought I understood it and could make sense of someone my age dying, but it wasn't until I stood in front of their open coffins that the fragility of my own existence became real. These were good kids. One of them was probably the smartest kid in our graduating class and was on the medical doctor track. He was killed in a car crash. The other kid was heartwarming, engaging, always had a funny thing to say. He was home alone, mowing the lawn, and had a seizure. By the time someone had come home, he was dead. The randomness of these deaths to such young people was very hard for me to comprehend. After this, I became a quasi-hypochondriac. I can recall common aches and pains stressing me out because maybe it was something serious. After all, every TV commercial that started with do you experience and ended with then you may be suffering from felt like it was speaking directly to me. I became acutely aware of illnesses and stories about young people who develop certain diseases. If it could happen to them, why not me? Why couldn't I be the victim of randomness? The problem was I didn't understand how to examine my own mental health so that I could dig into the source of my anxiety. I couldn't step back and recognize that the odds of there being a serious medical problem was slim to none, but all I could do was focus on the slight chance that I was a 19-year-old who wouldn't get to experience his 20s. As summer gave way to sophomore year of college, my generation experienced our JFK moment, something that would shape our view of the world for the rest of our lives. I was walking into my first class of the day, and my friend Matt came up from behind and said, Hey, did you see the news this morning? A plane hit one of the World Trade Center buildings. It was the morning of September 11, 2001, and my naivete was on full display. Must have been a small personal plane, I said. No way a jetliner would get that off course. I like to try to find the most rational explanation for why something happened, which is ironic because when it's about me, I always assume the worst. A backache couldn't be a pulled muscle. It was probably kidney failure. Yet when people came to me with their concerns or someone expressed fear over something, I am always quick to present the least alarming case. In this situation, I could not have been more wrong. By the time we got to the next class, the reality of the situation became known. Classmates were running through the halls to call family members who lived and worked in New York City. 
We watched it all unfold on the TV monitors in the Park School of Communications. The professor made half-assed attempts to get the class started, but even he had a hard time turning off the news. Even as we watched, in real time, the towers fall, there was still a sense that we were watching a movie. Nothing this graphic happens on the live news. This was doomsday theater. The rest of the day offered my first memory of binge-watching the news. The coverage just kept looping. People jumping from the towers, cell phone calls of people on the planes and stuck in the buildings, stories of first responders lost. It was unimaginable. So much of that day is deeply etched in my memory. One of those memories is carting back-to-back birdies at Ithaca's Newman Municipal Golf Course. That's right. I played golf on 9-11. It allowed me and two friends an escape from the overwhelming news cycle, and from a young age I found the game to be therapeutic. The quiet walk through nature, nothing but birds singing and the sound of your ball splashing in the water or breaking tree limbs as it charts a course through the nearest forest. It was a surreal nine holes as we strolled solemnly from hole to hole, wondering what new horrific revelations awaited us upon our return to campus. I remember struggling to make sense of that day for a long time. Eventually, one of my best friends from high school, who chose the Marine Corps over a football scholarship, would be deployed as part of our response. I was very sad about this and worried about him. I naively thought full-scale war was something my generation wouldn't have to worry about. He wouldn't be the only friend or high school classmate to be deployed during the War on Terror. Several more bravely defended us, all made at home, but one would eventually take his own life several years after his discharge. He wasn't a celebrity, but he was a hero. Summer after sophomore year was the first time I thought I was dying. I was watching a movie at the luxurious Binghamton Regal Cinemas, and throughout the picture I was becoming more uncomfortable. Not the should I put my arm around the girl uncomfortable, but rather disconcerting sensations in my chest. I tried to ignore it, but it was getting worse. And by the time the movie ended, my breathing had become shallow, and my heart rate was on the rise. Something bad was happening, and I couldn't stop it. All I could think about was that I was experiencing a heart attack brought on by my love of movie theater popcorn and artificial butter topping. For years, I was devoted to that topping, wisely never taking time to consider investigating the specifics of the substance. I didn't know, and didn't want to know. Finally, it had caught up to me. My best friend and girlfriend drove me to the ER, and after examination and some tests, they declared me in good health. I would follow up with my personal doctor, and after wearing a heart monitor for a few days, was declared all clear of any issues. I don't even remember what the diagnosis was. About a year later, the whole scene was repeated again, also coming out of a movie. I thought maybe I had a problem becoming too connected to characters and plots on the silver screen. Why was I so moved by raunchy teen comedies? Was it the gratuitous sexual situations I couldn't relate to? Or the realization that if at 20 I didn't have abs like the stars of the movie, 
it was probably never going to happen. Turns out, I wasn't dying. I had developed bad acid reflux issues while in college, most likely because of the stress I was internalizing, mixed with a diet that featured pizza, fried food, and cheap beer. The acid reflux can create distressing sensations in your chest. The uneasiness made me panic. And I panicked because, well, I thought of the worst case scenario. I couldn't be experiencing digestive discomfort. Surely my heart was failing. It wasn't until just recently I realized these were my first panic attacks. They would not be my last. After more digestive issues, and I'm using air quotes there because there were digestive issues, but it was part of a bigger issue. I decided to go to the campus doctor early in my junior year of college. He asked about any stress in my life. I said, well, my girlfriend and I just broke up. My grandmother recently passed away, and I just found out my parents are moving to Canada because my dad got a new job. He sarcastically said that qualifies as stress. I didn't inform the doctor of the previously mentioned sources of tension, but he did still send me off to the campus therapist. However, after one session, the therapist didn't think I was high priority and informed me he didn't have any availability for regular sessions, but offered a nice handout on how to cope with stress. A pamphlet. I actually really enjoyed the session. Maybe I talked a little too much and made too many jokes, and that led to the therapist to view me as Jack Nicholson from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. Either way, I figured I had passed the mental health test, and as time went on, I just chalked everything up to poor college diet full of bad food and natural light that would make me feel crappy from time to time. I excelled at drinking natural light, which is maybe why I didn't see the light until after college. Six years later, college is far behind me, I'm living in California, and I'm on my way home from work, stuck on America's most congested freeway, the dreaded 405. Crawling along, I was talking to a friend who was back in New York. During the conversation, I began feeling anxious, until it reached a point where I couldn't catch my breath. My heart was racing, and my breathing was quickly accelerating, which was ironic because it was the only thing on that road that was accelerating. I pulled off to the shoulder and dialed 911. And that's where we end part one. Please come back for part two and hear if Keith makes it off the shoulder of the 405. I want to acknowledge Channel 4 News of the United Kingdom for that interview with Bruce Springsteen, Brody Stevens' interview clip courtesy of the Keith Hannon Personal Archives, his stand-up performance is from effinfunny.com. Thanks for listening to The Funny Thing About. My name is Keith Hannon, and while I hope some of it was funny, I hope all of it made you think.